Thanks for listening to the Mornings with Carmen LaBerge podcast, made available thanks to support from listeners just like you. Inspiring you to bring God back into the conversation of the day. This is Mornings with Carmen LaBerge on Faith Radio. If we're gonna fly, we fly like eagles. You're always so good to uh, trust me with your prayer request and trust that I'm going to lift you up and pray for you. So I'm going to share with you this morning um, that my mom is in surgery right now. Uh, her name is Ruth Ann. She's 85. Um, and she is uh, having a heart procedure today to put a clip on a leaky valve. And um, yeah, so that's where my heart is and where some of my thoughts are. And I would invite you to lift her up in the name of Jesus to the great physician in the same way that I would do that for you if you shared your prayer request with me. So thank you. um, Thank you in advance prayers for Ruth Ann and for God to God to be in the midst of all of it in every moment of it. I have been practicing and cultivating something in my prayer life this year. Um, By the way, for those of you just joining us, I'm Carmen LaBerge. You're listening to Mornings with Carmen on the Faith Radio Network. So um, in terms of practicing spiritual disciplines, uh, I have been, uh, I have added this year into the spiritual mix of things, uh, praying with the Apostle Paul. And so uh, praying with Paul at the end of the last hour, many of you were like, oh, we're going to pray with Paul Perot, the producer. Yes, we are going to pray with Paul Perot, the producer but that's just because he's here all the time and we're always praying with Paul. We're also going to pray with the Apostle Paul. And so here are some um, some ways I have been praying with Paul. And so just, just allow this to be stirred into the mix of the way you're praying. First, um, Paul really did thank God for each and every person along the way um, of life with Christ. Romans 1, 8 to 10 I thank my God through Jesus Christ for all of you. 1 Corinthians 1.4 I give thanks to my God always for you because of the grace of God um, that was given you in Christ Jesus. Ephesians 1.16 I do not cease to give thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers. Philippians 1.3 and 4 I thank my God in all remembrance of you, always in every prayer of mine for you, making um, making my prayer with joy. Colossians 1.3 I always thank God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, when I pray for you. First Thessal- I can get that out. First Thessalonians 1, 2, and 3. We give God uh, thanks always for all of you, constantly mentioning you in our prayers. Second Thessalonians 1, 3. It's always right to give thanks to God for you, brothers. It is, it is right and righteous. Second Timothy 1, 3. I thank God whom I serve. As I did, as did my ancestors, with a clear conscience, as I remember you constantly in my prayers night and day. And then Philemon 1 4, I thank my God always when I remember you in my prayers. So, are we thanking God for each other, for one another, every single time we, we are blessed um, to, to have the other brought to mind? And so, when God brings someone to mind, 
when God brings someone to mind, our first instinct, our first inclination should it be should be to pray with them, pray for them with thanksgiving. Lift them up to God with thanksgiving. Thanking God for them. Thanking God for our partnership in the gospel. Thanking God um, that we know one another. Thanking God that we are brothers and sisters in Christ. Let that be our first inclination when we're praying for others. And then the other, um, some other things that Paul does, he prays that others would be filled with the wisdom of God, that they would have the knowledge of Christ, that they would be full of hope, that they would experience real unity and real peace. Paul prays that others would be strengthened with spiritual power. Paul prays that others would desire Christ and become temples in which Christ would be pleased to dwell. God, uh, uh, Paul prays to God that others would grow and abound in love, um, that others would have a harvest of righteousness and purity in their lives. Paul prays that others would overflow, even gush with praise and thanksgiving to God. And, um, and Paul also prays that others would be given the opportunity to minister and that he would have the opportunity to minister to others um, as a representative of Jesus Christ and an agent of his grace and a minister of his reconciling love, even an ambassador of his kingdom. So when I look at the way in which or the ways in which Paul prayed for others, Ephesians chapter one um, is really good for you to turn to and just make that kind of list. Um, because there's a lot of it in there. Ephesians chapter three is another place where Paul prays at length for others. But you've got to you got to look through all the letters of Paul um, to to find these evidences of his prayer life and the way that he prayed for others. So in terms of uh, a, a way to enter into the scriptures and to derive from them spiritual guidance and counsel in terms of how we ought to be living our lives and how we ought to be walking by faith. One of the things that Paul says is, you know, pattern your life after the pattern that you see me because I'm patterning my life after Jesus and follow me in all the ways that I follow Christ. Like Paul is trying to give us a demonstration of what it looks like. And so let's follow him in his pattern of prayer and how he prays for others. And just know that I am praying for you in the way that Paul prayed for his brothers and sisters in Christ in the days in which he lived. So thank you in advance for your prayers for me and mine as well. Uh, right now, um, thank you for your prayers for my mom, Ruth Ann, as she is in surgery. And we're going to have the good doctor join us uh, next, Brett Nix. Good time. Good, good segue, right? Good opportunity to bring in our friend and brother in Christ, Dr. Brett Nix. Uh, that's up next here on Mornings with Carmen. Joining us now, Dr. Brett Nix. You can find him online, um, and you can also check out what he's working on with Christian Medical and Dental Association, cmda.org. Good morning, Brett. Good morning, Carmen. Happy Tuesday to you. Mm-hmm. Happy Tuesday. Um, so, uh, you know, bottled water, fish, other things that are supposedly good for me, apparently also contain tiny little pieces of plastic that's not good for me. So in the spirit of what should we eat and what should we drink, a good doctor, what say ye? What's going on? Um, my goodness. You know, we have known about these things we call microplastics for many, many decades, to be quite honest. Uh, but it hasn't come into 
let's say, medical awareness, if you will, until here just recently. And what we end up finding is even though people are well-intentioned in their health, maybe drinking bottled water every day, going about normal things, and even the stuff that you do, let's say on an occasion, you, you spurge and you go out and you have takeout and it's in a plastic container. Each of these things have small and varying types of plastics. Some of these plastics are so, so small that they're not visible by our eye. Even you look at a plastic water bottle that you purchase at the store, it may look perfectly clear, but there's tiny, tiny, tiny bits of microparticles in there that we're ingesting. And what we're finding is when people are looking in blood, when we're looking inside of our body, when you're looking at areas as far as your, your immune system, as well as your GI tract, all of these little bits of plastic are not only present, but affecting how our bodies work. All right. And then I'm also uh, learning that like, okay, so we're supposed to be eating more fish, you know, less red meat, more fish, but fish are swimming in water that's got all kinds of stuff in it, including plastics. And the larger the fish, then the larger the pieces of plastic that they're like, am I eating plastic when I'm eating fish? And so you, you see the challenge, like what's a person to do? What, what would you have us do? Well, the natural tendency is number one, not to freak out. But to recognize, we have known for a long time that the oceans of our world <laughs> have sound like tons and tons of plastic bit. in them. It sounds like I'm freaking out a little bit, doesn't it? <laughs> yes. Yeah, okay. Just I'm raining it in. All right. So the, the bottom line is simply this, which is we know that yeah, between the oceans, between the food that we eat, is simply to go ahead and eat as healthy as you can. When it is something that is processed, like chicken nuggets and things like that, that people love, there's a chance there's a higher percentage of these microparticles in them. Mm. Eating fresh fruits, fresh vegetables, straight catch, yes, fish, um, that is the healthier way to go. We will learn more about this, but we do believe it's affecting immune systems. We believe it's affecting your intestinal systems and how you digest foods. And we do believe it will have an effect uh, on greater systems as it relates specifically uh, to your metabolism and uh, as we age, aspects of how we think and issues of dementia. Wow, there's a lot there. Um, all right, so let's um, let's talk a little bit about cancer and the prevalence of cancer in young people. It, it seems as if it, it's it's spiking. Absolutely. If you look at the data, and we know this to be true, look over the data of the last ten years, and you will see rates of early onset cancers increasing and increasing. And this is really we're talking about the rise among people under the age of fifty. We've heard it in the news, particularly gastrointestinal cancers like colorectal cancer, colon cancer, pancreatic cancer, and people asking, what is going on and why is this happening? At the same time, let's take a look back. Uh, I think that most of us would agree that uh, obesity has become a significant issue over the last multiple decades, but progressively since the 70s and every decade increasing. When you add into that uh, the levels of uh, stationary lifestyles, the sedentary aspects of things, the fact that we don't get up and move quite as much. We just talked about environmental toxins, the plastics and things of the world, and then add in a high sugar, high processed, high fat diet. And you're looking at the primary reasons, I believe, why cancers uh, are increasing significantly, especially with those with colon cancers or others. Each of these aspects point directly to that. Brett, when we, uh, when we talk about these things, you know, treating our body as a temple of the Holy Spirit, acknowledging that we're not the owners of our bodies, but we're stewards of them. Um, it's a good, I think, just a good time to have that kind of reminder. It's not just that it's a new year. It's that I'm a person who is not my own. I've been bought with a price. 
um, I think that that reminder, that recognition, that even even a bit of come to Jesus, there there is a connection between the ways in which we are choosing to live um, and whether or not our bodies are going to function well so that we can really bring glory to God and advance his kingdom purposes. There's a stewardship conversation to be had that we often Amen. like we, we like to gloss over that or we like to, you know, sort of focus on um, the things that we imagine can be fixed. Um, but there's also the brokenness with which we need to deal. And so um, things are broken because people are broken and sin is real. And so I just think I wanted to be sure that we had that reminder in there today. Like it, this is not, we're not having a conversation about what we eat and what we drink and, um, and the prevalence or the rise or the spike of obesity and cancer and, and all kinds of other things. Um, right. just because we think health is good. Health is good, certainly, but health is good because God gave us these bodies, um, to be instruments of his will. Just to give you a moment to reflect. Absolutely. On yeah. I don't think that. Absolutely. And it's incredibly powerful. When you think about that, we are called to treat our bodies as a temple of God. It is a gift that we have been given to steward to others. What better example than to live a godly life? Yes, spending time in the word. Yes, spending time in prayer. Yes, investing in other people. But at the same time, the testament to keeping your body as a temple and treating it as God would call us to. Those are powerful, powerful statements. We're talking with Dr. Brett Nix. Um, one of the organizations he serves with is the Christian Medical and Dental Association. He's also an emergency room doctor. We value your time. Um, when we come back, wondering if um, you could talk with us a little bit about the role of healthcare workers, some of those frontline healthcare workers in helping to identify victims of human trafficking. <clears throat> this is a, a good opportunity for everyone to be reminded that um, human trafficking is real. It is rampant. And you can play a role in identifying um, victims and and bringing um, bringing them to freedom and their um, their captors to justice. So we're going to talk about the role of healthcare workers next. You're listening to Mornings with Carmen. Jesus loves the little children. You guys know that Jesus loves the little children, all the children of the world. And right now, there are little children in the world who need Jesus. They also need things like basic food and medical care. Jesus tells us that what we do for the least of these, the little ones, we do for him. So this is your time to become the champion of one child, to change their life. When you sponsor just one child, you plant seeds of hope, and you work together with people who are on the ground to change the families, the communities, the future. You might not feel like you could change the world, but you can for one child. Meet the kids and find your child at MyFaithRadio.com. All right, in the spirit of not freaking out about things, uh, yes, Paul Perot and I are aware that if you just heard that um, that little uh, invitation to visit MyFaithRadio.com and sign up to win a copy of Susie Larson's new book, the link is not there right now. So, you know, put that on hold and, uh, and we will get that figured out, but it's not going to happen in the next uh, 30 seconds. So uh, take a deep breath and listen to the conversation that we're having with Dr. Brett Nix from the Christian Medical and Dental Association. Um, Brett, talk with us about the role of healthcare workers in identifying victims of human trafficking. Boy, I tell you, you know, this is modern day slavery uh, and people don't want to call it that, but that's really what it is. When you think about human trafficking, these are victims of any age, 
It can be any race, sex, gender, immigration status, cultural background. And we see this globally. This is a millions upon millions upon millions on a daily basis of individuals. And what trafficking is, for those who aren't clear, it's, you know, sometimes people think about it for sex trafficking. It is, it is labor trafficking. It is all of these different types of things built together. And at the heart of this process is the ability for the person who claims ownership of that individual to profit from exploitation of these individuals. And they do all types of coercive and deceptive practices to keep them at bay. And I'll tell you, as an emergency physician, we see it and we have to look for it. And it is very, very difficult. And healthcare workers really should be at front and center of awareness of this. Because keep in mind, uh, at any given time, especially those that are in the practice of sex trafficking, they're going to get infections, they're going to get sick, they're going to get ill, and they will seek care. Uh, there's a few things that people have to keep in mind and very clear signs related to it. Uh, number one, the individual, especially if it's an adult, uh, will have somebody with them at all the time and they will not uh, separate from that individual. So they're always with a trafficker or somebody that is assisting that trafficker. Uh, they, again, are almost never allowed to be alone. And many times as part of the normal exam, I'll have family members step out for questioning. It's in that process if you have a concern where something can be said. Uh, but many times, in addition to this, the individual won't speak out for fear of retribution. So it's very, very difficult and challenging. Um, many times they won't have access to their own their own identification. So they come in and they're given you know a name or whatever else that may or may not be theirs. Identification is not commonly required uh, to seek care in emergency department because it's part of EMTALA. We see everyone regardless of their ability to pay, their ability to identify or otherwise. And the last thing is, is many times if you ask the patient a question, the person sitting next to them answers the question. So there are typical tricks and things that you look for, but it's incredibly difficult. Uh, and I think that this is something that within the U.S., let alone globally, we really need to rise to a much higher degree for conversation. We need to call it what it is, and we need to recognize that it is heavily driven by the desires uh, in sinful nature within our own society that drives the need for trafficking, that creates the business for it. And what we know very closely, especially related to sex trafficking, it is heavily tied to pornography, and they're very difficult to separate, and the businesses are enormous. Uh, this is a very tender su subject for healthcare workers because it's difficult and resources are limited, but it's also one that it's really an imperative for society to address this widespread issue that we call human trafficking. Yeah, I, we're just scratching the surface um, on that topic, but thank you so much for just reminding us of ways that we as individuals, maybe you're not a healthcare worker right now, but, um, but you, you have interaction with, uh, with people who, you know, maybe they are just off the interstate and in and out of the place where you work. Maybe you have another public facing kind of job and, you know, we want you to have your eyes open. We want you to have your heart open. We want you to have your spirit attuned, um, to be looking for signs and evidences and to know, to know where to turn for help, to know how to, uh, get immediately in touch with law enforcement and to, um, and to get them involved, um, as quickly as possible, particularly, uh, if this person is literally under the bondage of another individual and, uh, and you recognize it and you know it. So thank you for that. Um, there is this, um, uh, connection between religiosity, how religious someone is and their religious practices and their ability to control their own impulses like that. This is this is very interesting to me. So thank you for bringing it to our attention. Can you unpack that a little bit? Yeah, 
You know, it's interesting. Uh, there was a study, and it's very small, and it looked at a small cohort of students, and it asked the simple question, does your level of engagement in religion, in your spiritual belief, impact uh, your actions and your interactions with others? More specifically, what does it look like in the space of self-control? And as they looked at it, these young adults, you know, they identified the fact that, yes, this is a time where individuals engage and struggle with controlling and unhealthy behaviors. But what they ended up finding was for those that have a level of engagement, that they are participatory in uh, a spiritual belief and participating within groups and other aspects. And they went into different degrees of what this looks like. And they basically found what we anticipated to be true, that the ability for you to have better focus of self-control is increased for those that are actively engaged uh, in a faith belief, uh, actively participating in that. And it wasn't that they were seeing life as less abundant and less thriving in life, but rather they identified the limits in which they were called because of their belief and actually at the same point in time kept them out of impulsive behaviors that would be very harmful in a habitual perspective as well as uh, long-term issues as far as injury uh, from whether it be drugs or abuse or other types of aspects. Uh, fascinating study. The participants, again, small number, about 10,000 in total. And it really looked at different aspects of it and looked at whether or not it was not just behaviors, but also psychiatric issues. And it also found that issues as far as depression uh, and associated features with mental illness were also significantly decreased uh, for those that were actively engaged in their faith. So there's a pastor in Oklahoma who's got a forthcoming book um, called Think Ahead. So I'm reading it because it's coming out. And we're going to be talking with him in about a month. But um, his whole for, his whole introduction is on this concept of pre-deciding. And so when I was thinking about this study and I'm thinking, okay, is it really the religious practices that they're engaged in and the rhythms of church? Or is it the fact that they have learned the value of pre-deciding? So it's not like they're making a decision about whether or not to have unsafe, unsafe sex when they're in the back of a car. They're not getting in the back of the car because they've already pre-decided that that's not the path they want to walk in. Or it's not like they're making a decision in the moment whether or not to smoke a joint that's passed to them. They've already pre-decided. Like it's not the, the pre-decision of the person of faith, um, I think, is the point of decision. And so... I recognize that, you know, the the engagement in a religious community and all of that is of great value. And that's probably where we learn the patterns. Um, but ultimately, as individuals, like, it's not you're not deciding in the moment, you've either pre decided, or you're probably going to trip over into the sin. I mean, I just so let me just encourage people to, to pre decide today, <laughs> to engage in uh, healthy behaviors, um, and in, in ways of life that honor Jesus. You know, Carmen, that's amazing, and I completely agree. The predecision process is how our brain works. It's a firing mechanism. It is we are placed in our faith, we are placed in our engagements to have healthy conversations and make determinations about the direction in life that we want to live uh, and the example that we want to be. And it's in that process that we have mental wellness. And mental health for me is probably not the right word. I love the term mental wellness because it is a stage and it's something that we vacillate through. Uh, it's not necessarily something that we achieve. It is something that we strive for on a continuous basis. But that's also true with our spirituality. And so I think uh, you're absolutely correct in your readings on this, in the predetermination piece. It's not something they looked at in the study. They were really looking at as a, a basket of, are you in this basket or are you not? 
but I think that you're absolutely right. It's what is in that basket. What is the practice of those in that space that is the greater influence? And I think that is the answer. Yeah, you're going to like the Think Ahead book. Um, well, yeah, I'll just connect you with that. It's a, I think you'll you'll really enjoy it. Um, Brett, as always, thank you so much. Thank you for pinch hitting this morning. Um, thank you for being our friend and our colleague in ministry. We just we really enjoy our time with you. No, it's my honor. Thank you so much. Have a wonderful day. You too. That's Dr. Brett Nix. He's an emergency room physician. He is also affiliated with the Christian Medical and Dental Association. If you are a person working really at any level with any relationship at all to um, uh, to the health fields, you need to check out cmda.org. Um, you need to be aligned with colleagues like you, Christians who are um, working in in relationship to our physical and mental health um, connected with each other, and you're going to find all kinds of resources there to encourage you in your walk of faith vocationally. Um, you're listening to Mornings with Carmen. Um, you and I are going to spend some time together, just you and me. How's that sound? Just you and me here for a moment. So let's start with this. Um, I was not aware until this year. I don't know. Maybe I've been sleeping. I don't know. I don't know where I've been because apparently this has been a thing for some period of time. Have you ever heard of dry January? Have you ever? I, I've, I've never even heard of it. Now I've heard of it. And dry January has apparently become this like post-holiday tradition for a lot of people starting the new year, focusing again on their health or on um, wellness. And they commit to uh, a month, the, the month of January, not drinking so skipping alcohol for a month. And so let's just be clear. Let's just be really clear. No level of alcohol consumption is safe for your health. N- none. Zero. So abstaining from alcohol, pre-deciding that you're not going to drink is actually the healthiest option. Let's like full stop. Let's let's just have let's just stop right there for a moment. Uh, no level of alcohol consumption is actually like safe for your health. Yes, I know the Bible says a little wine is good for the stomach. Let's keep in mind that the wine of Jesus' day and the wine of our day are different kinds of wine, very, very different kinds of wine. So um, so Americans drink a lot, and women have been drinking more and more, um, and more women drinking to greater excess recently. And so uh, alcohol is still killing more more men than it is women, but people are literally drinking themselves to death in America. And they're certainly drinking themselves to, to the point of not being able to make good decisions. Um, and so uh, let's just talk for a moment about the value of abstaining. Are you engaged in dry January? Maybe you could try a period of sobriety, being a person of sobriety longer than that. And if you are a person who has um, been challenged with addiction to alcohol, um, you know the value of sobriety. And so the rest of the culture really needs you to step forward, to be leaders in these conversations, to press in. Uh, And I just want to invite you to consider a life of sobriety, a life of genuine sobriety. I bring this up today because January the 16th, 1920, is when prohibition began in the United States. Did you know that? Uh, It was the day that the 18th Amendment to the Constitution took effect, January 16th, 1920. Uh, One, uh, let's see, um, it was obviously later repealed by the 21st Amendment. 
Um, why? Well, because people loved alcohol too much uh, to give it up, even for their own good, even when it was made illegal. And so the morality legality conversation is a good one to have in relationship to alcohol and relationship to our cultural addiction to it. So yeah, I don't mind saying it. We are culturally addicted to alcohol. Um, so as Christians, what about a life of sobriety? Titus 2. I offer it to you in its entirety, but for the sake of time right now, let's just look at a few verses, 11 to 14. The grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people. The grace of God trains us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions the grace of God uh, trains us to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age, waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of the great God and Savior Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and purify for himself a people for his own possession, who are zealous for good works. That's the life of sobriety to which we are called in Christ. You're listening to Mornings with Carmen. All right, we're going to talk here for a minute just among ourselves. You're listening to Mornings with Carmen. I'm Carmen LaBerge. Uh, We are bringing the mind of Christ to bear on what matters today and the matters of the day. You will recall, you might recall, um, that when he was running for president, Joe Biden um, ran in open opposition to the death penalty. So during his run for president, um, Joe Biden's criminal justice platform included a pledge That said this, we're going to work to pass legislation to eliminate the death penalty at the federal level and incentivize states to follow the federal government's example. So um, those convicted of the most egregious federal crimes, quote, should serve life sentences with probation, without probation or parole. So that was um, then candidate Joe Biden's platform when he ran for president. Starkly different from the uh, Republican um, position uh, as a party on this issue. And so as we enter into uh, this conversation happening in the United States right now about the federal government, the federal, the, the Justice Department seeking the execution of the man who carried out the racially motivated slaughter of people in a Buffalo, New York grocery store who he targeted because of the color of their skin. Um, And because we are in an election cycle, this is a good time for us to talk about the death penalty. It's a good time for us to talk about what does the Bible say about the death penalty? Federal prosecutors are seeking the death penalty against um, the man who killed 10 black people in a racially motivated massacre in May of 2022. And this is the first time that, Um, President Joe Biden's administration has sought the death penalty in a case. So why this case? Why now? Why this person? Why this change? And when you hear um, the president and others talk about this, you will hear God um, referred to. Uh, In fact, you hear him refer to um, my God a lot. You hear him um, say things like, um, 
in in this particular case, you know, if God if God wills it, like things like that, and you're just like, okay, so he's clearly making the connection between justice and uh, the imposition of justice by the government, the use of the quote unquote sword by the government in terms of punishment, um, and God and his uh, in, in his case his Catholic faith. So let's talk about that. Let's talk about this question um, that's going to be raised. If should the death penalty ever be used by the government? And if so, is this the case? And if not this case, then what case? No case? So we're going to unpack here um, arguments from Scripture mandating capital punishment, arguments from Scripture um, prohibiting uh, capital punishment, and arguments from Scripture permitting capital punishment. Again, this is one of those things where um, Christians are going to decide for themselves, but I do think it's important for us to think through what Scripture actually says, um, because there's a, there is a lot of conversation about this, and you and I ought to be prepared for it. So let's start with, uh, doesn't the Bible mandate capital punishment? Well, um, the principal argument would be that life is sacred and those who wrongfully take another human life, um, their life should be the the repayment for that. It's a form of like restitution as a matter of, ju- of justice. Um, and so the idea is that the state purges itself of those who shed innocent blood. That might be a way to understand this. So the biblical arguments that you could make uh, in terms of the scripture mandating or requiring the use of capital punishment by the state, you could turn to Genesis 9, 6. Whoever sheds the blood of a man, by man uh, his blood shall be shed. For in the image of God, God has made man. So this is a part of this larger covenant that God makes with Noah after the flood. Um, and it certainly reflects the great value of human life. It also gives the reason for that value. Man is made in God's image. Um, there's very absolute language here. Um, you know, life for life uh, would be one way to um, quickly interpret that. There's another argument that says the law, which is given to Moses at Mount Sinai, um, actually ordained execution for several offenses. Murder, not accidental killing, but murder. Striking or cursing a parent. Kidnapping, adultery, incest, bestiality, sodomy, rape, um, witchcraft incorrigible delinquency, breaking the Sabbath, blasphemy, sacrificing to false gods, oppressing the weak. I mean, there's a whole list of transgressions that are um, that are death penalty worthy in terms of the law given at Mount Sinai. But what does the New Testament say? Well, there's no New Testament passage that expressly mandates capital punishment, but um, there are several passages that imply its appropriateness. You could think of Romans 13, 1 to 7, where Paul um, calls uh, disciples to submit to the authority of civil government, reminding them that, quote, if you do wrong, um, the government, the authority, um, doesn't bear the sword for nothing, which is to say they rightly bear the sword. And the sword, by the way, implies execution. So on the flip side, what does scripture have to say in terms of prohibiting capital punishment? Um, so you you would have to recognize here that the Old Testament clearly calls for capital punishment. You can't 
You can't escape that. Um, and so for those who are going to turn to scripture and look for the prohibitions for capital punishment, they are going to argue the developments of the New Testament era, and they are going to see those as superseding or replacing um, arguments from the Old Testament. There's just no question about that, um, that the that the Old Testament <clears throat> is nullified in some way. Uh, and so that would be important to recognize. Christ's death on the cross ended the requirement for what's known as Old Testament blood sacrifice or blood recompense. The sacrifice of Jesus, who is the Lamb of God, did replace the sacrifice of animals. His death made it unnecessary to execute murderers um, to maintain human dignity because Jesus died for the dignity of every person and establishes human value on the cross. Um, Hebrews 9.14 uh, says, How much more then will the blood of Christ, who through eternal spirit offered himself unblemished to God, cleanse our consciousness from acts that lead to death so that we may serve the living God? Uh, And then certainly Jesus teaches um, forgiveness and a willingness to suffer either rather than resist it by force. So those might be some passages of scripture that... um, people who are opposed to capital punishment would point to in terms of, uh, of the scriptures, both the letter and the spirit of the law. Scripture um, permits capital punishment. Um, and I think this is probably the strongest argument, whether you stand uh, as a pro or, or a con in terms of uh, capital punishment and its use today. You can't argue that scripture well, it cannot be argued that scripture doesn't permit it because scripture certainly permits the use of capital punishment. Um, and so let's, um, let's talk when we come back about the conditions under which scripture permits capital punishment as a way, um, you know, uh, to lead into how we might talk about the death penalty and its use today. You're listening to Mornings with Carmen. I'm Carmen LaBurge, host of Mornings with Carmen. I got some good news for you today. Jesus Christ is the good gift of God to each and every person. We heard the proclamation of Christmas that there's this good news of great joy for all people. Well, guess what? That means you. Jesus is the good news. He is the gift of God given at Christmas. And maybe you're saying, I don't feel so good. I haven't really received this sense of good news. Well, we would invite you to wake up to the goodness of God with 40 Days Toward Healing and Wholeness. It's Susie Larson's brand new book. Our friends over at W Publishing gave us 100 copies for Christmas to give away to you. So we'd invite you to enter to win yours now at MyFaithRadio.com. Wake up to the goodness of God, 40 Days Toward Healing and Wholeness, because Jesus really is the good news and the great joy for all people. Connecting Faith to Life, Faith Radio. When you think about justice, do you think about um, revenge? Do you think about locking someone up and throwing away the key? Or do you think about um, redemption? Do you think about redemption? Do you think people can be redeemed? Can any person be redeemed? Is there the possibility of redemption for anyone? So this conversation about capital punishment and the death penalty is a conversation about um, what is right and righteous. And um, it is also a conversation about whether or not anyone can be redeemed. And so uh, Stephen asked on the text line, 
um, is it right to lock a person up for life? That's a that's a different conversation, Stephen, than um, than the one we're laying out here in terms of capital punishment. But it is a good conversation to have. And I'm I'm one of those people who I believe in second chances. I believe in uh, there being hope for redemption for every person. I think there should always be the possibility of demonstrating a changed heart and mind and life with the hope of freedom and a new life. Like we're forgiveness people. Now, as soon as I say that, I recognize there are people listening who um, horrible, horrendous, terrible, terrible sins have been committed against you. And you you want to see justice. And for you, that means that the person who perpetrated those crimes deserves to die. Um, or they deserve to spend the rest of um, their life uh, locked up. That that suggests that we don't believe in redemption. That suggests that we don't believe that those who have sinned much can be forgiven much. That suggests that we don't believe um, that there's the possibility that um, a person can be made new. So uh, very quickly here, the the Bible does permit capital punishment. We actually already talked about the places where the Old Testament clearly calls for capital punishment. Um, it's also important, I think, to recognize that um, Israel um, was a theocracy. It's not anymore. It's a secular nation now, but it was a nation ruled directly by God. And so the law of Moses for the state of Israel was unique. It was unique. Um, and we don't live under that law in the same way anymore, in part because Christ fulfilled it. Christ's death on the cross ended, you know, again, the requirement um, for for the kind of blood sacrifice that um, the Old Testament calls for. So noting that the Old Testament includes provisions for capital punishment, we also must recognize there's a lot of people who committed capital crimes who um, who were not executed. Cain is a good example, like, right? He, he murdered his brother uh, and he's not executed. Moses is a murderer. We know it. David, um, we clearly not only, uh, you know, sins um, by taking what is not his in the, in the person of Bathsheba, but then sending Uriah, her faithful husband and David's faithful soldier to the front lines and then having, um, having, the rest of the line withdraw and Uriah is killed. And that's murder by every definition. So um, Jesus uh, not only refuses to condemn the woman who's caught in adultery, um, who, you know, the old Testament would say she should be stoned. Um, you know, he forgives her right then and there. So there are, um, there are examples to bring forward from the Bible in terms of not everybody getting what they deserved, even according to the law of God um, in place at the time. New Testament passages certainly assume the existence of the death penalty. I mean, that is what the cross, I mean, that is, that is by the way, what crucifixion is, right? It, it is the death penalty. And so the old, the New Testament certainly assumes the existence of the death penalty. It assumes that um, Rome, which is, you know, the ruler of the day, has the state's authority to execute. Um, but authority is not obligation. Because you have the authority to do something does not mean you are obligated to do it. And so um, states are permitted but not mandated. 
states are permitted, not prohibited, from the use of this particular sanction against those who um, commit egregious, egregious crimes. So as we think through, as Christians, how we apply the mind of Christ to the conversation in the culture about the death penalty, about capital punishment, um, here are some words to think about. Um, Proportionality, right? The punishment must be proportional to the offense. The certainty of guilt. Um, Are we absolutely certain this is a crime committed by this person? Intent. You know, did they intend to do this kind of harm? Due process. Um, Certainly here in the United States of America, but I would say, you know, we as Christians want people to have due process. Um, Only after, you know, an appropriate... (laughs) Uh, process that includes probably the passage of time so that emotions aren't just hot in the moment. And then are we reluctant to execute? Is it, is it literally like our last resort? Taking no pleasure in the death of the wicked. This is Ezekiel 33. God laments, as sure as I live, I take no pleasure in the death of the wicked, but rather that they would turn from their ways and live God himself, the lawgiver himself, is reluctant to impose the death penalty, preferring that wrongdoers repent. Reluctance doesn't mean there's a refusal, but it does imply that execution should be a last resort, that we should hold out hope for repentance, contrition, um, that a person would repent and turn. And in the Christian worldview, be saved. Do you hold out that kind of hope? I do. And it, um, it leads me to be reluctant to, uh, to seek, um, to seek to see the death penalty executed against anyone. All right. In the last couple uh, of minutes that we have here today, I just, I want to just alert you to this very different kind of story, but also a story about life and death. There's a guy named Jonathan Van Ness. He's, Um, literally, in my view, like the picture of confusion. He's a 36-year-old man. Um, In the picture that I've got in front of me up on my screen, he's got a full dark beard, very long flowing hair, painted nails, a wedding ring on his left hand that's very clearly designed for a woman. In the photo, um, he is wearing a uh, Malibu pink shiny sheath dress, confusion. He is the picture of confusion. He is commonly referred to by his initials, JVN. He's American hairstylist. He's a podcaster. Um, He is the grooming expert on Netflix uh, series Queer Eye, which was initially Queer Eye for the straight guy. Why am I talking about him today? Because he's um, offered a recent interview where he, he talks about his desire to live as long as possible, not because he wants to make the world a better place or make a valuable contribution to it. Because, um, in his own words, um, he wants to avoid death. Um, I want to get really old. I've always been like that. I've been obsessed with avoiding death since I was a child. Let me just say this. Death avoidance is not life. It's not real life and it's not full life. Death avoidance um, is totally futile. Death is coming. It's coming for us all. I'm not a fan of death either. I'm a fan of life, and I want people to be living it in faith every day to its full, and yes, eternally, and the only way that that's made possible 
is through Jesus Christ. So let's worship him today. Let's glorify him today. Let's fan the flame of the gospel. Let's go forth as ambassadors of the king and the kingdom, not just avoiding death at all costs, but living life to the fullest, the cost of which was the blood of Christ. To him be the glory and honor forever and ever. Amen. Have a great day and God bless. Thanks for listening to Mornings with Carmen LaBurge. Podcasts like this are available because of your support. If it's important to you to hear things that encourage your faith, click the link in the show notes to give now. And thanks.